The police came to me and said, we're investigating your husband in relation to homosexual homicide. I remember saying to them, can you tell me what homosexual homicide is? And that's Julie Baumeister. Hmm. I thought you said homeless the first time. Homeless. <laughs> homosexual. Like, <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, homeless deserve love too, you they know? <laughs> this is Jen. This is Becky. And this is Too Close to Home. And this is Fox Hollow Farm and Herb Baumeister, part two. Part two, two, two. two. <laughs> I love that we do that every time. <laughs> every <laughs> time. <laughs> and so let's talk about the sources again. The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm by Richard Estep and Robert Graves. You Think You Know Me by Ryan Green. Thoughtco.com, Herbert Richard Baumeister, serial killer, the Indiana businessman, had a history of mental illness, which is the longest title ever, <laughs> by Charles Montaldo, Wikipedia, FBI records. <clears throat> I'm on that list, baby. Maybe I'll get one number one one day. Uh, I'm always number one with the FBI, right? Always. <laughs> Medium.com. Okay, so last time we talked about Herb's weird beginnings, his hidden life. In the lead up to what we're talking to today, which is the gruesome murders by Herb the Perp Bobmaster <laughs> and the haunting of Fox Hollow Farm. So remember last time we talked about uh, a young man named Tony who claimed that he had met the person that he believed killed his friend Roger Goodlett. He stated that while drinking at a bar, he met a man by the name of Brian Smart, gazing knowingly at Roger's missing persons poster. He listened and drank with Brian to see if he could get more information on him and who he was to solidify his suspicions. He just had that nagging feeling and he was listening to it. Brian invited him back to come back to his house and that he was watching for some friends. And he was like, sure, okay. And so they drove for quite a while. It was, on, it's like how we are to Houston. We're like an hour outside of it. And so they're driving for a while and this guy's just got this terrible feeling about him, but he's going with him to see if he could figure it out, which is like something I would do. 100%. Um, <laughs> 100%. Me, I'd be like, nah. Nah, I'll, I'll meet you later. <laughs> but he's I'll get like, you in contact with my girl, Jen. She'll go with you. <laughs> Any day of the week, you say you got some <laughs> mystery to solve, you call this bitch Scooby-Doo. She going with you. <laughs> Bring snacks. <laughs> she is. <laughs> She's also terrified like Scooby. <laughs> and so uh, he said he started seeing all these lights and then you know, from the city and it get darker and darker until it's just starlight. And he's mm -hmm. starting to panic when they pull through a gate and they come up to this house. And he was like, a, he's like, it's almost like a horror movie. It's a huge house on a hill with no lights. And Brian's like, I know it's creepy at night, but it's so beautiful. Wait to come in. Wait till you see the pool. And Brian. Oh, was, and then he walks in there and it's a bunch of fucking mannequins sitting around <laughs> it. Creep back to her. On <laughs> right. her. <laughs> he said, so Brian, you know, brought him in. I go through the house and there's a whole bunch of stuff there, but it's dark, so he can't really see. And he takes him down the pool room. And of course, there are the mannequins. And he's like, oh, those things. It just gets so lonely up here and they keep me company. I'm like, sir, get a dog. Yeah. What? What's a mannequin going to do? Just be there? I mean, if you have voices in your head already, the mannequins have voices. Uh, yeah. Th there's all your personalities. Yep. His look of disbelief had to been prominent with Brian, you know, saying, oh, it's no big deal, you know. So he said he was going to go change. Brian said he was going to go change clothes. And Tony was like, OK, sure, I'll just stay on here. And Brian's like, I'll bring you a suit to wear. So as soon as Brian leaves a the room. Oh, that's right. There's supposed to be a party. <laughs> yeah. OK, I'm like, what? <laughs> go swimming. Yeah. <laughs> Which I mean. Oh, a swimming suit. Honestly, though, like if you're there to, to get it in, that's like your <laughs> come on line. Like. Do you want a bathing suit or do you want to go nude? <laughs> I'm not saying I'm the queen of pickup lines, but he missed the obvious thing. Okay. It missed opportunity. And so uh, Tony starts looking out of the room, sees the bar, goes to the bar, starts looking through it and finds a shit ton of drugs like cocaine and stuff. And he's like, well, we did meet at the club. Drugs are not that big of a deal. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. And so he goes back to sit by the pool just as Brian comes in. And so... Tony gets changed. He gets in the pool, starts doing laps. Brian makes a drink at the bar, comes and sits by the poolside. At one, at one point, Tony gets out of the pool, and it's almost like um, Brian kind of rushed him, gets him like into one of the chairs beside the pool, and he's like, I learned this really neat trick. And he starts talking <laughs> about erotic asphyxiation. Uh, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> so what like what happens is you wrap it around and then you get close and then like you get to the, just the point where you're about to pass out and then you let go and it's just like this euphoria and you just you gotta try it and he pulls a fucking tube of a uh, hose underneath the seat that was just sitting there hmm hard pass for me like sir you planned that uh, stop it <laughs> stop <laughs> What happened next is terrifying. Uh, Herb would Herb said to him, like, you should see their face when their lips start turning blue. Mm-mm. And the guy's like trying to play along. So Tony, he starts choking Tony over and over again. He choke him until he's about to pass out. Bring him back. Tony's like starting to get fucking terrified. I mean, he probably already was, but I'm, now he's shitting bricks. Yeah, like, and I'm he's like, okay, so agreed once. I'm going to pretend I've passed out faster than before so I don't get as close and then eventually because of it happening over and over again he does pass out yeah. and he wakes up to um, Brian leaning over him going oh my god are you okay uh, people have nearly died from them as you scared me but Tony said like when he came to at first Brian was just sitting there looking at him calm and then when he realized he was awake that's when he jumped in like oh my god oh yeah I'm sure oh no <laughs> <laughs> My bad. Oopsie. Tony responded, is that what happened to Roger Goodlett? An accident? How many accidents have you had? Brian. This might not be the time to say that till you really gathered your bearings and strength and get the fuck out of there. Exactly. Brian, he's like, you must have had too much to drink. Let's just sleep it off. We can try again later. And he lays down in another chair and fastly goes to sleep starts snoring and so tony gets up and he's like fuck fuck i gotta find some evidence of something and he goes upstairs and he sees like all these boxes and there's sheets on all the furniture and he's like just it does make sense like nobody's living here but he couldn't find anything other than it just was a house full of junk and so he came back down and he starts going through uh brian's jacket trying to see if there's anything in there when he hears brian go tony are you Are you trying to rob me? Could you imagine how cold your blood would have went? Oh, yeah. The panic you already had, your heart just dropped out your asshole. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, no, I'm looking for a lighter. (laughs) Tony's like, oh, no, I just, I have to wear him tomorrow. I need you to get me back to town. And he's like, oh, oh, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Next week, let's get together and do this again. (laughs) (laughs) So... He gets in the car with Brian, and Brian takes him back to his car. He's so panicked, he sees the car, but he doesn't get the license plate number. Because I would be panicked, too. I get it. I get it. You're not running on all cylinders except for trying to survive at that moment. Tony went, obviously, to the police. The police were like, okay. We don't want to hear about your crazy sex games. Exactly. Like, turn down the kink, sir. I don't need it. (laughs) Then Tony was so insistent, he went to the local FBI office who said, fuck, you're wasting our time. Get the fuck out of here. So he's like, oh, I don't know what to do. And so he hears about Virgil because of the missing poster signs and stuff. And he contacts him. And I just call her Detective Mary. I kept writing Detective Mary, not putting her whole name on there. <laughs> just thought funny. <laughs> and told him the whole story. And of course, knowing about the previous men missing, they believed him. While they drive all over the richer areas looking for the home. All they hit is a dead end again. They said like the media the next day, Mary's driving him around. He's like, I remember it was dark. I remember there was a gate, but I couldn't remember the house. I just know there was Fox something in the name. And it's just such a wide swath of land that they just never came across it. And also, I don't think you can see the house as well from the road. They also think that because Tony was considerably larger than smart, that's probably why he survived because Herb was naturally super tall, but he was also a very slender man. So I guess physics there, whatever. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> not a scientist. <laughs> I just a podcast. Just a girl. Doing a podcast. With her best friend. <laughs> <laughs> to learn more about Smart, Virgil arranged to follow Tony at their predestined spot that they were going to meet. Like, they did make plans. Like, okay, we'll meet in a week here, except Brian never shows up. Mm. So he's pretty much gone in the wind. 
In August 1995, a year after last seeing Smart, Tony saw him again and followed him quickly to get his plate numbers this time. He turned the plates over to Detective Mary, and she found the plate was registered to a Herbert Baumeister. As Wilson discovered more about Baumeister, her and Virgil realized it was true. Tony had narrowly escaped becoming the victim of a serial killer. Hmm. Armed with his name, they confronted Herb at his store, who blew them off and told them, go through my lawyer, okay? <laughs> Talk to my lawyer. He acted clueless and said this had to be an, a misunderstanding. I'm a married man, not a pervert. <laughs> like, sir, first of all, we said homosexual. We didn't say pervert. And first of all, half married men are perverts. Exactly. <laughs> they are the pervertedest. They also visited Julie. And while she was shocked, she said it definitely wasn't Herb and that they were mistaken. After they visited Herb at the store, Herb had called her and said, you know, the police are going to come. Don't let them on the property. Don't let them search the house. It was just like this disgruntled employee that I had before who's trying to get back at me for some bullshit. Just don't worry about it. He didn't tell her what they were looking for, particularly that homosexual homicide, but that they were coming for some nefarious reason. So she pretty much warned, you know, blew them off, said, get off the property. Don't come back. Virgil and Detective Mary tried to get Hamilton County officials to issue a search warrant, but they refused, saying there's just not enough conclusive evidence to warrant it. Their marriage was circling the drain, Herb and Julie's at this time. Their stores hit new lows, and with high turnover rate and being cluttered as part of his hoarding, the Children's Bureau canceled the contract with Save-A-Lot, and the Baumeisters faced bankruptcy. Herb believed his failures in life might have been attributed to his lack of killing, so he decided... Time to get back on the old horse and head down to the gay club. He <laughs> if I kill more, I'll do better in business. Exactly. I was winning at life <laughs> with murder. So he gets into a club and it's not long before he introduces himself to some guy and says, Hi, I'm Brian Smart. And the guy stands up terrified, yells at the bartender. It's him. It's him. It's Brian Smart. And he fucking books and gets the fuck out of there. So now his hunting ground is spoiled. He can't even go to a day, mm -hmm. gay club anymore to get his victims. He's got this. He's got police breathing down his neck. His marriage is falling apart. His dreams of being more financially um, independent and, and wealthier than his father is definitely not happening. The answer is probably Kilmore. Kilmore. Always, right? Always. Julie, this was like a six months from the day the officers came to her door he went in like a steady decline, just losing his shit. And finally, at six months prior, she was like, fuck this. Like, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to file. She filed for divorce and called Detective Mary to tell her about the skeleton her son found. Oh. Because like, when they called before, like, she's not going to say any of that shit. At that point, I think she was probably hoping that he was telling the truth. They searched the property and found the pool surrounded by mannequins, just as Tony had described. They also discovered a hidden cam corner, but not a single tape was to be found. With little effort, they started finding bones in the garden everywhere, charred teeth and remains as evidence of his bonfires. Mm -hmm. So they were pretty sure that he killed them, went out there, burnt their body, shuffled it up. And it was not really well hid, to be true. You always got to dig a deep grave. Come on, people. Shallow uh, graves. <sighs> rookies! Thank you. <laughs> it took... Three days before they thought they found all the bones. Plot twist, they did not. Yeah, they never do. They never do. Not, bones can be so small. Mm -hmm. Herb had already moved out at this point, so he was unaware that they had been searching the house. Julie had been instructed, like, that the day that they were going to serve warrants on him and all that stuff, of her divorce and custody change, they weren't going to tell him about the kid, like, discovering the bodies yet. They're, she's like, okay. Go to school, Julie. Pick up your kids. Bring them home. And then we're going to go to him. That way the kids are definitely safe. She goes to pick up the kids. Freaks out because he had picked up Eric already. Mm. And she's like, oh, shit. Oh, my God. So they go to his little tiny apartment that I guess he's staying at. And he answers the door. And he's like, hey, how are you guys doing? He's like, well, I'm here to give, serve you this um, divorce summons or whatever and tell you that your custody has been revoked and your wife has full custody and Eric needs to come with us. And he was like, Playing it off like it was just some kind of addictive ex-wife. Like, oh, that bitch. All right, Eric, get your stuff. You have to go back to mom's. I'll see you soon. Not acted like anything's wrong whatsoever. Um, sorry, you guys. Sorry that we're wasting your time. It was very pleasant to the officers. 
probably realizing that he is under the scope, like this is the end, Julie's finally relented and possibly gave him up, he decides to abscond in this time. While they're just holding up, trying to get all this evidence kind of situated. They said they found like a thousand bones, the first swath. The detectives received a call from Herb's brother, Brad, stating that Herb was was in Canada and said that he had lost his wallet and then he was on a business trip. And it's, I just need you to wire me $5,000. That's all. That's it. I just need to get through this trip. Not how am I going to get back without my passport? None of that shit. And of course, I guess his brother was like, fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> Last time he was seen alive was by a Canadian trooper to wake a man who was sleeping in his car on a bridge. And asked him to move along. Because on a bridge? Why would you stop on a bridge to sleep? Exactly. And the officer, the, the trooper said that there was boxes like he had been moving. And one of the boxes was open and it had tapes in it. Ah. Oh. And so he drove deeper into Pinery Park in Ontario, Canada. And he would write a three-page letter blaming his suicide on everyone. Not mentioning the murders. Not once accepting any kind of responsibility for it. Not even talking about that he was gay. Just... My wife did this. My job fell apart. My parents are horrible. It's everybody's fault. Same narcissistic bullshit. Had a peanut butter sandwich and then shot himself in the head. God, why would that be the last thing you had? It was his favorite snack, if that tells you what kind of psychopath he was. (laughs) Not even a glass of milk or nothing. Just raw dogging on that (laughs) peanut butter bread. (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) They said when they found his body, those tapes were no longer there. And from the bridge to where his body was found was lakes and rivers mm. and forests that was out in the middle of nowhere. So they could be anywhere. Anywhere. And if they were, they probably their VHS. You can't even couldn't even look at a VHS back in the day without that <laughs> shit fucking up, okay? <laughs> you ended up with the on it. <laughs> splice and tape it back together just like cassettes. Right. Be kind, rewind. It's <laughs> <laughs> like BC talk, like <laughs> So, obviously, we talked about the I-70 murders before. The I-70 murders stopped right before he bought Fox Hollow Harm. Like, there's no more murders happening that are connected to this series of murders. And so, the parts of I-70 was in Ohio, Indiana. And she actually helped investigators with, like, receipts and stuff, like, where he had exactly been on what date so they could help find some correlations there. He is not... 100%, nobody knows for sure if he was the killer. They don't have any real conclusive evidence. So right now, he's just the top suspect. But it still remains unsolved. Was it gay men that were getting killed along there? Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. They would be picked up at the clubs and killed somewhere on I-70. Julie and her children would sell Fox Hollow and move on with their lives. Victims in their own way as well, to the devastation Herb had wrought when he was alive. There was a owner after the Baumeisters who never lived in the home despite trying to sell it for two and a half million. It sold for much less to the Graves family in the early 2000s. It was originally 18 acres, but that owner sold off eight acres of land, leaving the 10 acres and the home where it's now. And that's what the part of the property that they bought. The guy ended up Using part of that to, he cut it up that eight acres and had other homes built on it and sold those off and then built a home for him and his family. Hmm. Knowing that there's bodies out in these woods. I'm all right though. There might be some underneath these houses. Who knows? It could be a poltergeist, poltergeist situation. <laughs> just happenings. People like us bought those homes. <laughs> yeah. People are like, cool. Right. <laughs> Woo. The ghost comes free with the house? Do you think this is a cleaning ghost? <laughs> <laughs> A chef goes. <laughs> if you recall, one of the resources, uh, one of the authors of The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm is Robert Graves. He is the owner of the property. Him and his wife, Vicki. In June 1996, Hamilton County law enforcement found remains of at least 11 people in the property. Yikes. At least uh, 10,000 bones and bone fragments were found at Fox Hollow Farm and According to the coroner's office, only eight have been identified since the initial discovery of remains. The additional three million, three million. (laughs) (laughs) He was a prolific one. Prolific. The additional three remains are still unidentified, although they are believed to be male and definitely victims of homicide. The Hamilton County Coroner's Office is requesting anyone with 
missing family members from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s in the Indianapolis area to complete a DNA test in effort to identify those victims' remains. And as we know, that is happening more and more frequently. Mm-hmm. Get your DNA done. Submit it, y'all. You're going to solve a case by either finding out who a victim is or finding out you have a serial killer in your family. Okay? One win, li- win. <laughs> You Either way, you're going to be on IDTV. Okay? And that's the holy grail of true crime. <laughs> December 2022, so last last year, they had the Hamilton County Coroner's Office and 10 cadaver dogs search the property again. During the search, there were 20 locations that were flagged of potentially having human remains, as well as a discovery of one single human bone. Mm. The deputy coroner logged GPS points on each of these locations. The bone that was found on the property will be submitted for forensic examination to determine additional information. And unlike TV shows and movies... Forensic genealogy and DNA are a lot longer processes mm-hmm. than they make it. It's not a 15 They don't drop minute. it off at the lab, go get dinner and pick it up. No, it's not. So much shit would be solved. <laughs> yes. Maybe one day they'll be looking back and be like, no, nah, I took them bitches years. <laughs> <laughs> Being as Herb died without any admission or acknowledgement of the murders, it's truly unknown how many he killed. Between Fox Hollow and I-70, it's suspected he killed 25 or more. Mm. What we do know is that he would often burn the bodies of his victims on the farm and that he did mention autoerotic asphyxiation to his surviving victim. The rest is truly speculation. Um, horrifying. That it, it's almost worse because your mind is left to just run with it, like what he did. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the hauntings. I want to be clear, I have some minor skepticism of the Graves family's experiences. Throughout the book, they speak of the cost of the upkeep of the home, even saying how it takes six hours to cut the grass um, or $1,000 a month to heat the pool. I believe they experienced some things, but I often wondered how much they used it to their advantage or were they true explorers of the occult like us? We don't ever know. You know, I'm not. It cost them. me that much to keep my house out and I could rent it out. I'd be like, so when I was cutting the grass the other day, <laughs> the skeleton came up out the ground and was like, mind my grave, mind my grave. And I was like, got you, Holmes. It was crazy. <laughs> it was one bright fucker here. Come stay the night and you'll see shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so while some uh, surrounding neighbors claim to have never seen anything indicate that it was haunted, there are so many firsthand accounts of spiritual activity in the property that's. First of all, the neighbors are haters, and they're part of the HOA, so don't, not, <laughs> yeah. don't listen to them. Defund the HOA, baby! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I will say I totally enjoyed my boys at Ghost Adventures, but damn, they went hella off script almost several times on the facts of this case. Even saying that he performed a ritual before committed suicide. Motherfucker, what, a peanut butter sandwich? Is that a ritual? Right. <sighs> you have no evidence to that. Like I said before, the Grace family purchased the property. It took many years to negotiate the deal. Eventually, it got to the point where, like, we, we put in an offer. It was way more than we could afford, so we could put in something we could afford. He, well, oh, we ain't going to work with that. And it days turned into months, turned into years. And finally, he contacted them. He was like, listen, nobody else has ever put an offer in. Could you please buy this shit? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's about how mine and JJ's experience with buying a car is about to go. I'm going to go back five years later and be like, no one's bought this car. Are you going to accept my offer now? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, come on, dog. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they would end up purchasing it for just what the land was worth, not accounting the home. So they got a sweet. Hello, Wanda. Probably still a small fortune they spent. Yeah. It's why you're trying to buy in League City, Texas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, it's only 400000 Oh, there's nothing on it. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense. Don't mind if I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the Grace family also mentioned that there were previous owners to the one that sold it to them and that a lot of those owners got in it were like, oh, yeah, we'll turn this around, make it a per- pretty penny, and they would all get foreclosed upon. So it mm-hmm. never had a good history. Not many people lived there after Herb and stuff, which, I mean, understandable, unless you're me. <laughs> <laughs> was the rest of the neighborhood still doing well? Yes. Oh, okay. like there's some like you look at the pictures of it now, and you can see some really nice houses surrounding it and stuff. It's bougie. I would go um, uh, stand on the corner of the neighborhood and try to wash people's windshields and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna bring that value down. <laughs> I'm gonna black out one of my teeth. Uh huh. Carry a thing of booze. 
They'll at least give me twenty dollars to leave them alone. Listen, you pee on it, you're definitely gonna be considered crazy. Bring back her spirit of peeing on things. <laughs> I pee on it, it's mine. <laughs> and so uh the first night they slept all in the living room together because they were worried, like, you know, maybe this shit is haunted. We don't know. Yeah, it's probably what I do too. Like everybody, we're sleeping in here together. <laughs> right. Uh, turns out their biggest fear at that moment should have been the massive renovations that the place needed. <laughs> <laughs> it had sat empty for a decade or more. There were raccoons living in the attic, tons uh-uh. of plumbing issues, four foot tall grass, electric electricity issues, the list goes on. The guy said it was like um, owning a ship and painting it from the front to the back. By the time you got to the back, it's time to paint the front again. <laughs> like, so it's just constant working all the time and Richard Eastep which is the other co-author he was like the whole time we were there they were constantly working on shit (laughs) (laughs) having to fix this having to fix that and it's just like if you have like a foreign car it was expensive to buy so what makes you think it's not going to be expensive to fix exactly which are Italian sandalias exactly after a while they started experiencing a different type of haunt the home was a scene of uncountable horrors and the dwelling of a serial killer. So morbid curiosity spawned many weirdos like me who <laughs> searched out places. Remember when we went to all Dean Quirrell's haunts? Yes. <laughs> Good times. So much fun. We are those people. <laughs> there were several shows that would air on the history of the farm and it would cause spurts of trespassers. And it's almost cute the way they talk about trespassers. They're like, we take that shit serious. They don't take that shit serious. They probably love the shit out of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hoping like a TikToker comes along and they go viral. Oh, right. <laughs> After some of the cleaning and the renovations started, as always, little things start happening. Anytime you disturb shit in a haunted area, you disturb the ghost too. Robert Graves' wife, Vicky, would recall a time she was vacuuming and the cord became unplugged. First, she assumed she just ran out of cord and unplugged it. So she plugs it back in, goes back, turns it on, and it turns off right again. And she looks back, and it's further away from the wall. Like, she hadn't pushed it anywhere. There's no way it could have flew out that way. He was like, bitch, I said I'm trying to see. <laughs> like, cut it out. <laughs> His wife is a scientist by trade, specifically a pathologist. So she was like, there's got to be some explanation. I'm just tired, whatever. Later on, uh, she would be outside with Robert. He had painted something outside and she, he's showing off his work like a husband does. Yes. And she, he's talking to her and she stops and she starts looking off the distance and she says she saw a man with a red shirt running through the woods. Both of them thinking it's a trespasser. They start booking in that direction like seeing what the fuck's going on and they couldn't find him. This piece of woods is covered by pastures around it. So it's like little spurts of tiny baby woods. So... And it was clear, broad daylight. No red shirt anywhere else. Like, he went in there, went behind a tree, and was gone. Mm-hmm. Sure. The more things happened, the more she couldn't explain, and the more she realized, it might be really haunted. <laughs> the Gray's family would offer their friend Joe LeBlanc to become a tenant. There was a 1,100-square-foot apartment above a garage that would work perfect for a single working guy. Little did he know, he wouldn't be living single, but living with spirits who would make their presence known quite quickly. He had an experience with knocks at his door with no one on the other side, and it would happen often. He had, like, a horse knock. I would just leave the door open then. Yeah. Come on in. <laughs> and the things that they write about in the book is also some of the same experiences that they talk about on the show, you guys. So if you want to see a more dramatized version of this, definitely watch, watch him talk show. about it. But the door knocker was, like, this bronze horse door knocker. And he said he heard it, like, knock really hard. And then he saw the um, doorknob start to jiggle like somebody's on the other side. So he's like, the fuck? Well, in the book, they said that he's, he opened it. But on the TV show, I think he said it flew open. Either way, door fucking opens. And a guy, this young man who's soaking wet, comes running past him and goes into uh, the back room and disappears. And he's like, the fuck? Did he leave what footprints? Hmm. I don't remember. There weren't wet footprints. It didn't happen. And there was another instance that he opened the door and like the door knocker had like a one of those weights. So if you pick it up, it just drops. Mm-hmm. This one, it was just sitting perpendicular. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it just dropped. <gasps> right in front of his eyeballs. <gasps> <laughs> I know. I was thinking the same thing as I was like, oh, a haunted knocker. <laughs> I'm going to need some more spooky shit. Right. Lame. 
And so, uh, get with the real stuff. <laughs> I want you to wake up and the ghost is in the bed with you. Another thing was like he had this dream that he was running through the woods at night around Fox Hollow. And when he woke up, he had this feeling that he had to run, but it didn't remove his sense of foreboding. Like things would just kept getting worse for him. He had a dog named Fred. Aww. Who would also, I'm here for it. Every once in a while, have out of character behavior, you know, looking in directions, howling, like growling, whining, stuff like that out of nowhere. One day they were on a walk and Fred would start barking at nothing, his hackles raised on the back of his neck. And this would happen shortly before he too saw a young man in a red shirt running through the woods. Only this time he noticed that the legs were see through. He said the guy, oh, yeah, those legs were. He's like, the guy's running. And you can see his body in front of the trees, but his legs are see-through. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. Later on, after this occurred, he's seen pictures of suspected victims of Herb. And he was like, that's the guy. Oh. That's the guy I saw. And Julie also agreed. Like, that has to be him. Did anyone go missing wearing a red shirt? That's a good question. I have no clue. <laughs> I <been> a detective. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slacking. Slacking. Later on, he would also come to find out that area that they saw the red shirts was where the majority of the bodies were found, or the bones. That was the chief burial ground for Herb. And they had been walking through it the whole time. Um, Joe would once... No, I don't want to walk on no graves. No, no. No dog. Mm -mm. Joe would once speak to Vicky about a discovery he had made. Being a trained pathologist and her previous experience assisting a coroner in autopsies, she confirmed that it was possibly a human bone. And so she contacted a forensic anthropologist at the University of Indiana. And this guy apparently assists in a lot of cases. So he met her at the door because she wasn't allowed. It's very secure. There's a lot of crime scene evidence and stuff. He looks at it and he's like, oh, yeah, that's a left femoral shaft. That's definitely a human bone. And he estimated that it had been in woods probably about 15 years. Oh, wow. So since the murders. Turns out that same pathologist had actually worked on some of the bones from the case in 1996 as well. Oh, wow. Small world, right? <laughs> it wasn't the last time a bone would be discovered on the property. And since there have been bones and partial bones found on the property, every time they find them, they take it to the University of Indiana and it gets cataloged with the rest of them. They're, the Graves and their friend Joe felt strongly that the ghostly apparitions were needing help possibly that these tortured souls were stuck in the purgatory of Herb's Fox Hollow Farm and that they needed release to the other side. So they continued, you know, to live at Fox Hollow Farm as they, as all the hauntings ramped up. Joe invites friends over to go swimming in the pool. Now, <laughs> homie knows what fucking happens. You could not get me back in that pool. You could not. Swimming with ghosts sounds like a... Um... Excursion trip. I've got OCD, the contamination of dead bodies in my brain. You can't erase the emotion. Some people want to swim with dolphins. I want to swim with ghosts. Yeah, I just can't. Oh, man, I just couldn't. And so he invites his friends and they're going to have a pool party. And he says, I'm sitting there and I feel these hands wrap around my neck. Uh uh. uh like uh -uh. the butt of his hands are at the back of his spine and his, the fingers slide up around his throat. And he's like, they were icy, cold, bony fingers. And he freaks out and he's like, what the fuck? Just when he feels something pull him down and keep him underwater. He finally is able to get up and he's, his friends think he's fucking around. You know, oh, soon killer's down. And then when he starts screaming at them, get the fuck out of the pool, get the fuck out of the pool. They're like, oh, he ain't joking. <laughs> um, he never went back in the pool after that. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'd be the person who went and put my hands in ice water and then came up behind you. <laughs> got him. <laughs> <Got 'em! laughs> While things were calm for a while, it would only be temporary. Joe would conduct an EVP recording of his apartment, determined to get to the bottom of the hauntings. He caught an EVP about a man speaking around his about his wife. Joe's theory is that her Baumeister is haunting that specific apartment that he was living in. When contacted by Ghost Adventures, they were a bit hesitant, given Zach's flamboyance and flair for the dramatic, but they were hoping they, as professionals, could catch more solid evidence than they had been able to at that point. They do also have some disagreements um, on the technology and investigation style because this was like the first time they had paranormal investigators out. They had since have had psychics and investigators and all that shit. So they've learned a lot about that kind of uh, for the paranormal devices. And one of them being the SB7 spirit box. And for those guys who don't know what a spirit box is, 
it uses radio frequencies that are being scanned to hopefully allow those beyond to pick words to speak to us. He believes using those is, makes you prone to audio pareidolia, which is a human's way of perceiving words from a random noise, as well as just being, it's just very jumbled and hard to understand. So it makes it less accurate when you're deciphering the words. So he doesn't believe those work as well. Another thing is that in the episode with Zach, he's like, I feel like they have an attachment to Robert. Like he does in every episode, like there's <laughs> always a negative entity attached to somebody. And he's like, um, I listen, I'll agree to disagree, but I don't <laughs> think that he was attached to me. <laughs> so it seems like there's no bad blood, but I feel like he afterwards he was less impressed with Ghost Adventures. They did get some compelling SB7 responses that seemed a little too coincidental, as well as light anomalies and EVPs. I won't completely plot spoil it. Just go see the magic that is Ghost Adventures on Hulu or HBO Season 11, Episode 9. Definitely worth you get to see all of what Fox Hollow looked like or looks like right now. Since Ghost Adventures episode, they have invited several types of paranormal investigators and psychics to the property. They wanted their take and general consensus is that Herb and his victims seem to be there. They say that several victims lost their lives in the pool room and that they have attempted to help many of the victims cross over to help stop the hauntings. While it's more subdued, it's actually still ongoing. It was said they were able to banish her, but something has taken his place that is trying to imitate him. So many people are mistaking Herb as the entity when it's just some kind of dark spirit. One shaman who stated that they that all the victims stayed to the back of the property, which is where the pool room is, and that were there were older spirits on the property as well of indigenous Americans mm -hmm. and that they were upset with how the land was developed and everything, understandably. And that there are also possibly two inhuman spirits there. One which only appears at nighttime out in the woods where the bodies were found. And he's just like a dark shadow. No, thank you. It's not going to be a no for me. One of the most active portions of the home is the pool room, of course. There will be ghostly knocks and people will get touched when in the pump maintenance room. There are also ghostly steps and they spoke of apparitions of young men throughout the whole house. So let's talk about Richard Estep, who is the co-author of the source material with Robert Graves. I'm going to condense a lot of his portion of the book into experiences as his writing was very much of a ship's captain's log. <laughs> and this investigation happened over several different visits. And I'm not going to lie, Richard's portion of this book is very tedious. He gives so much exposition that honestly, I'm doing you a favor by abbreviating it. Okay? Oh, I believe you are. Um, I don't have as much. I just want the cliff notes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I literally Googled cliff notes. I didn't even know cliff notes are still around. That's how much I was very done with Richard Step. Like, bro, if you're listening to this, I apologize. But my God. It was just space filling at that time. It was like Zach Bagans. He just has too much flair for a dramatic. And he just is like, sir, let's talk about nuts and bolts here. Because this is a haunting. <laughs> I don't need you to set the mood. It's already fucking creepy. Thank you. <laughs> And so Richard contacted the graves and offered to fly himself and investigators out to see if they could catch evidence of the hauntings. He began investigating in November 2016 with a small group of investigators and tech experts. Jason, Sean, Aaron with the E, Arthur, and Cletus. I just love that Cletus is the last one. It's my favorite. Me too. Uh, Jason and, and his wife had been working with Richard before. They were tech experts and, well were great at their job. Sean was a Air Force veteran who also claimed to be a sensitive. Okay. Which I was like, oh, it would be an Air Force veteran. Just kidding, guys. I'm just fucking... <laughs> we were, we're Army here. <laughs> <laughs> um, Aaron and Arthur, they're Colorado Springs-based paranormal investigators, and they have great reputations, and he was hoping that, like, possibly they would bring something new to the table that maybe he would miss. And then Cletus, who was just new to the field and was hella enthusiastic and always ready to dive in. <laughs> that is me. I'm Cletus. That's my spirit animal. <laughs> so they get there and they took a 90-minute tour of the home the first time. And this, they got the stories of the rooms. They began breaking out the equipment to begin the investigation. Too long, didn't read. Basically, they had lasers and all sorts of shit covering about every room, leaving no area without some kind of paranormal surveillance. So, like, there was cameras, there was fucking EVP machines and shit. The little light bulb things that just light up when a ghost touches it or whatever. <laughs> I'm not a professional, obviously. 
They experienced a ebb and flow with the haunting, sometimes nothing, to clearly evident attempts at communications from spirits. They caught EVPs and had a ton of personal experiences, especially around the pool. You know, some pokes and scratches, but like shockingly harder, like poke, like a hard poke. You know, not just like trying to get your attention. He believed that there was an elemental occupying the property as well, which is something they had been told before by the shaman. They called it the frog, and it stayed in the pool area mostly. And according to mediums, he had almost an amphibian appearance. When they were like frog and in the pool, I'm like, that's kind of. That's what I was just <laughs> thinking. I was like, oh, oh, he looks like a frog. Okay, I get it. I too would call him the frog. <laughs> it makes it less frightening too. Like, oh, he's just an inhuman spirit. Don't worry. It's just a frog that hasn't passed over to frog heaven. <laughs> and uh, the, I kind of Googled like what a um, elemental was. And I just suggest you Google it. It's hard to explain. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's inhuman spirit. A lot of times they're tied with elements. There you go. Okay. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I will not be goggling that later. <laughs> Their first visit was a span of three days, but of course they would return to investigate. When they continued on their second visit, they were able to come in a more warm season so they could investigate outside before. Previously, they had come in November, which is colder than a witch's titty in a brass brawl <laughs> in Indiana. So all the branches were like icy. And so when they were out there trying to record the wind going through them, it just all these cracks and pops. It just polluted all their audio. It just wasn't conducive to a investigation of integrity I don't know, that, that makes me feel yeah. silly saying that about no. a paranormal investigation like if you're gonna but, do one and you're like this isn't gonna work because of this at least i can appreciate you instead of you going it's the ghost <laughs> on the branches they're speaking to us then it's like oh, get the fuck out of here right <laughs> they also invited joe leblanc because he only lived there for i think a year and a half or somewhat they asked him to come back to investigate his old apartment get his experiences and they spoke of a repeating experience of seven knocks that they would hear often. Not a knock more, not a knock less. Seven knocks in a row. During their investigation, a psychic, Brian Sanders, came up to the house and caught Robert by chance at the front gate. Front gate was always locked because they didn't want trespassers. trespassers. But somehow he was up there at that day just working on the gate. And this psychic came up and he was like, all right, bro, come on up to the house. <laughs> and so... He comes in and they're like skeptics, so they say at first, and then he starts saying, well, who's Ellen? And before they could answer anything, he's like, oh, wait, that's your aunt, and da 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 And he's like, some of these things you can Google, but some of this stuff at the time was not Googleable. Like, it wasn't a- available, so they still were kind of skeptic, but they kept talking to him. Um, they talked to, He talked about the Native American spirits that were disgruntled by s- settlers and the victims of herbs that were still there. Also, both very Googleable. They weren't exactly sure how to take him. After some more interactions, they finally realized or determined, in their opinion, that he was the real deal and a needed asset to the investigation. So when Brian was taken around the, the home, he immediately, out on the outside, noticed the burn pile or the area where the burn pile was, where the bodies were mostly. You couldn't tell what it looked like. It just all looks like there's just a bunch of fucking leaves out there. It was not like there was obviously burns and shit happening at that time. He walked right over there and said, this is where bodies are. Right here. And so they were like, and I guess like, I mean, some of this stuff is available on um, FBI website. Like they have a lot of the work from that. So I'm like, uh, I still kind of about yeah. it. So then he started talking about things in the home. Uh, there were a few portals specifically like one in the master bedroom bathroom and he's like hey that's just how spirits get through the world which explains why spirits can die in one place and haunt another they use these portals to go through all these different spots and eventually these portals close so you're just gonna have to be get used to it (laughs) he's like in the book he's like literally you have to grin and bear it like sir (laughs) you just told me there's a portal that isn't my toilet in my bathroom (laughs) And so he said there was definitely an inhuman spirit there. There was a portal in the swimming pool and it had opened due to all the negative energy from the murders. And it allowed that entity to come into our plane. And then so that's the entity that pulled Joe underwater. Mm. He said that there was all these spirits in this portal and that 
the one with the neck thing was not meant negatively. And so the, that's I what, know that's how I hug JJ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they do. My I do love. Slump. I do love that they do put their skepticism like, mm, I think you're kind of hitting the marsh, missing the mark here, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was a friendly neck hug. <laughs> um, it is at my house. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that's how we snuggle. <laughs> he would go on to tell them about his methods of work. He worked solely with angels who protected him from all the bad entities. Okay. We're getting a little off right. here. <laughs> he stated that any psychic or paranormal researcher who claimed to speak with her was not, as he was in a very special purgatory that had no way to reach people in this plane. Okay, thank you, sir. So he was being poked by old Beelzebubs. Okay. Brian was able to suss that many people had died in the pool, that Herb had no accomplices, he disposed the bodies on his own and had certainly taken his own life despite rumors that he was executed, which I didn't read anything about any rumors like that. The only rumor I heard was about that stupid ritual that he supposedly yeah. had. So at this point, Richard starts talking about contacting Herb's only victim, Tony Harris, and invited him to come to investigate and to be interviewed as well. My understanding is like he went out there one time, right? This is the wildest fucking thing. Okay. So Tony Harris is a, definitely an alias. Always has been. He's never profited off his trauma. He's never done any interviews that are out there. He's just spoke with the police who uses that alias and everything. They claim that, you know, they felt like he was telling the truth because A, he's a victim. And two, A, he's a victim. And two, B, <laughs> uh, he didn't want any money from this interview but that his, except for the, the caveat that his name remained anonymous. My opinion of this, because of the way this story changes, and I'll tell you in just a minute about that, is that they lied and said they talked to Tony Harris. No. But how are you going to confirm nor deny that when this he's is anonymous? An alias. Um, and then you don't have to. And he can't come out and be like, they didn't talk to me. But and he didn't get paid, so there's no tax records because somebody's going to get 1099, you know, if it's a certain amount. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's no way you can trace it back to confirm or deny this is what Tony said. Also, like, how did they find Tony? Yeah, because it's an alias. It's an alias. The, the, the fucking Graves family didn't know him or anything like that. Stupid. So this is why I started getting really pissed off at this book. <laughs> He said that Tony Harris was a tall man with piercing eyes and a magnetic, a charismatic person. And he spoke of the mannequins in the pool room and that Herb spoke of himself in the third person, also calling himself HB. And perhaps as a part of his schizophrenia, these mannequins kept him from being less lonely. Uh, they were dusty and only Herb was allowed to touch them. And Tony would talk about Herb, but call him Brian due to his pseudonym and alternate personalities. He believed that Brian was good and Herb was evil. He believed that he was possibly possessed, and Tony himself claimed that he was a sensitive. He said there were shadow spirits there that seemed to almost be an ominous warning. He believed there was an accomplice, that, and that the night he was there, he hadn't showed up because there was a weird outburst about a window being dark. Well, in the previous version of the story, all the windows were dark, so why would it have met? Like, right. none of that makes sense, right? In this interview, he states that he wasn't looking for evidence, when he left Herb sleeping, that he was looking for something he could steal and hawk because he was a different person then. He talked about how he used hoses, ties, and other things to asphyxiate victims. He talked about a pretty intimate way to use pool jets in addition to, to erotic <laughs> asphyxiation. And so basically, I want to pretty much ignore everything about this version because it's unverified. And if it is false, it's a huge fucking insult to the real Tony Harris who was an actual victim. Right. Because this interview made him look like he was an accomplice. Like he was sitting yeah. there saying, oh, well, he had schizophrenia and this is what he did when he killed victims. And they were like, how do you know? He's like, well, I was here several times and da, 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 da. That don't make no damn sense. Mm -hmm. So did her Baumeister kill? Evidence suggests yes. Is there spiritual activity of sorts happening at Fox Hollow? Possibly. Is there a whole lot of lies being said to fluff up the haunting? I'm 90% sure. <laughs> <laughs> what I do know is that several victims, known and unknown, died and were buried at Fox Hollow, and that Herb 
the perv, Ballmeister, was an incredibly twisted man. One of the authors posed, if Herb had been allowed to be openly gay and live his truth, would he have still killed people? And I say yes. I say yes. Just like there are people out there with traumas and those suffering from mental illness, they actually make a choice not to kill to get their rocks off. Um, <laughs> he was a sadistic individual who preyed on the gay community for his own horrendous sexual and devious desires. If it is haunted, I hope those spirits of the victims can pass on to a better plane without suffering and pain, and that Herb Baumeister is getting tortured by old Beelzebub. I hope so, too. And that's the story of Herb Baumeister and Fox Hollow Farm. Very good. <laughs> very good. It's a very lackluster haunting. It is. It is. It's a little disappointing. <laughs> I know, like, because I was so excited getting into this because I'd seen the show. I'm like, this is crazy. And then I read it, and I'm like, Wait a minute. You guys got me. <laughs> like, Listen, I love believing in this stuff. Oh, yeah. I really, really do. When my dad passed away, our friend Julie, who does both of her hair, she actually also believes in psychics and stuff. She's like, I know a great psychic. I can connect you with them. Like, these are my people. I love this <laughs> stuff. So for me to sit here and go, this is horseshit. <laughs> it's got to be. It's got to be, y'all. Bordering on the line. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys. Thanks for joining us. Um, I do want to say thank you for everybody for being so patient with our um, weird release schedule. Just a lot of things as life happens. Uh, hopefully, I'll get my shit together and I'll be more regular in scheduling. <laughs> Probably not. But that's okay. Because I won't uh, either. I'm working. I'm live, laugh, lurking. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so find us on our socials, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. Check out our merch. Don't forget we're... We're not trying to get rich, y'all. I mean, we kind of are, but not off merch. No. We like it as advertising. We appreciate the support, like, sincerely. Don't forget to rate and subscribe us on all the platforms so that the podcast gods will look favorably and make us, like, maybe in the top 100 true crime podcasts. That would be a dream of mine. It, same. You know? Top 100. That's not too, asking too much, I don't think, right? Top 100, Jennifer gets a tattoo of too close to home on her shoulder. I fucking will. <laughs> you, I fucking will. I will get it. I'll get my back covered in a too close to home tattoo. It's going to be you and me. I was going to say, our faces be on him, please. <laughs> you know, like Steve-O has his face, like, and he's like yes. thumbs upping. That's going to be, you're going to be on my right shoulder. I'm going to be on the left shoulder. Yes. <laughs> Jimmy's like, oh, God. Now, then if Jimmy's only like, I would only hit it from behind, it's going to get weird. <laughs> <laughs> he hit it nowhere but the missionaries. Ah! So, <laughs> don't forget that we're on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, all the different platforms. Good or bad, put it up there. I love. I had someone, you know, say I had a really great Southern accent. And Aww. thank you. Okay. Same for those who say I'm loud. I'm loud Aww. and I'm proud. Okay. <laughs> And until next time, keep your head on us. Oh, that's not me. She needs a break. <laughs> I need a break. And until next time. Stay safe. Keep your head on a swivel. <laughs> don't bring it so close to home. You'll be acting up and making some fake hauntings. Like, don't be. Don't be. We, you, you making everybody look bad. Don't exploit victims. Don't. Or you get our shit. We're going to make fun of you. Word. Bitch. Your mom. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Until mm -hmm. next time. Keep your head on a swivel. Wait, what? Huh? Like <laughs> I can see myself slow mo taking that. Like, wait, what am I doing? <laughs> My brain is failing me. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode of Too Close to Home, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on most platforms. Follow us on our social media at Too Close Home Pod on Facebook, at Too Close Podcast on Instagram, or if you have your own Too Close to Home experience, shoot us your story at Too Close to Home at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>